0: When it comes to adapting great literature where is the line between interpretation and desecration for centuries all shakespeare's plays were produced with steadfast adherence to what was held as common consensus to be the bard's initial intentions however in the early 20th century that changed when a young director dared to challenge the classic canon in 1937 orson welles took back beth out of the scottish highlands and up to new york's harlem where with an all-black cast he swapped the Caledonian witchcraft for Caribbean voodoo. Rapturously received, it now stands as arguably the landmark production of any English-language play any time in the 20th century. Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire, and John Osborne's Look Back in Anger, they don't count, because they were new plays. What the 21-year-old Wells did was, let me rephrase that, Orson Welles was but 21 years old when he helped redefine what makes a classic work of art truly classic. Instead of being a resolute and immutable work that never changes meaning, Wells showed that classic art can be, no, needs to be, reimagined from a variety of perspectives, and if it still stands up, it's because new meanings have been found. The Voodoo Macbeth proved that a true classic can be supplanted into a different era and still retain its relevance. Just to prove his point, in 1938, Wells repeated that feat when he staged Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and, with little alteration to the text, redressed the whole thing so it looked as though it was taking place in fascist Italy. But beyond the query of whether the original still stands up, the vital thing to ask is whether the adaptation is any good. Which brings me back to my question. Where is the line between interpretation and desecration? Then all the world confess... There is not in all the world a more beautiful damsel than the Princess Catherine of Yorkshire. But I, I'm still your slave. No, Catherine. I now make you my queen. Whatever happens out there, here you will always be my queen. Not only have there been 12 film versions of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, her novel has also been a source of countless stage productions, as well as inspiring Byrne and Herman to write an opera and Kate Bush to pen her biggest hit. Even Cliff Richard got in on the act with No, sorry, I can't. But no matter in which format you're experiencing the retelling, until recently, All adaptations of Wuthering Heights have followed the same pattern that has dominated adaptations of classic literature since the earliest days of cinema. The first, from 1920, is now considered a lost film. So for many, the main reference is the 1939 Hollywood version, directed by William Wyler and starring Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon. But rather than a fateful retelling, producer Sam Goldwyn felt that Bronte's tone for her own story was too dark. Goldwyn wanted an intense, passionate, but bright romance, so he instructed writers Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur to lighten the mood. Heathcliff, why don't you run away? Run away? From you? You could come back to me rich and take me away. Why aren't you my prince like we said long ago? Why can't you rescue me, Heathcliff? Cathy, come with me now. Where? Anywhere. And live in haystacks? And steal our food from the marketplaces? No, Heathcliff. That's not what I want. You'll just want to send me off. That won't do. I've stayed here and been beaten like a dog. Abused and cursed and driven mad, but I stayed just to be near you, even as a dog. And I'll stay till the end. I'll live and I'll die under this rock. Bronte's novel covers 30 years and two generations, but the 1939 film ends with Cathy's death, which is only halfway through the book, Worse, the film ends with the ghosts of Heathcliff and Cathy walking hand-in-hand across the moors. Which would be fine if any of it made a consistent point. Instead, things were changed on a whim. For instance, Goldwyn insisted that the time frame be reset from the late 1700s to the 1840s. Why? Because he felt Oberon looked better in off-the-shoulder gowns which are not in fashion in the 1780s. Well, what brought about this amazing transformation? Did you uh, discover a gold mine in the New World, or perhaps you fell heir to a fortune? The truth is, I remembered that my father was an emperor of China, and my mother was an Indian queen. And I went out and claimed my inheritance. It all turned out just as you once suspected, Cathy. That I had been kidnapped by wicked sailors and brought to England. That I was of noble birth. At this juncture, it is crucial to note that when it was released in 1939, Goldwyn's production was not a hit. Its reputation only gathered momentum, with television screenings beginning in the 1950s. And that certainly chimes at the manner in which the Baudelaire's version has influenced popular culture's regard for the brutality of Bronte's book. If you have seen the film before having read the novel, It will profoundly dilute your perception of the rage, jealousy and sheer psychosis that grip the central characters. Little of which would matter if only there was a discernible reason for interpreting the novel in that way. But there isn't, which leads me to say that for all of its popularity and individual strengths, the 1939 production is a desecration. The only thing that really works is Greg Toland's Oscar-winning cinematography. While today, Toland is best remembered for having lit Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, he collaborated with William Wyler on no less than six occasions, and each time the pair refined their visual style. In a move that paved the way for how Stanley Kubrick would film Barry Lyndon, Toland's aim was to, as much as technology would allow him, show the world as Bronte would have seen it, by natural light and candlelight. Of course, in 1939, there were no lenses nor film stocks Capable of doing so. But that did not stop tolan from at least giving the impression of candlelight, which at least conveyed the emotional darkness of Bronte's story, as well as reminding us of the physicality of her world. Oh Cathy. Cathy. I'm not the Cathy that was. Can you understand that? I'm somebody else. I'm another man's wife and he loves me. And I love him. If he loved you with all the power of his soul for a whole lifetime, he couldn't love you as much as I do in a single day. Not he, not the world. Not even you, Cathy, can come between us. Heathcliff, you must go away. You must leave this house and never come back to it. I never want to see your face again or listen to your voice again, as long as I live. You lie! Why do you think I'm here tonight? Because you willed it. You willed me here, across the sea. Even though it adheres more to Goldwyn's film than it does to Bronte's novel, if you want a compelling adaptation of Wuthering Heights, Go to Mexico, where, in 1954, Luis Bunuel delivered one of his mid-career gems. For starters, he retitled it Abismos de Pasión," which really underlines what it is all about. It takes place not in any Wuthering Heights, but in the depths of passion. Pathetic fallacies lie everywhere, the landscape is putrid, trees are gnarled and the soil is dust dry. And yet, despite his avowed atheism, Bunuel repeatedly has the support characters, express the belief that Heathcliff, Has made a pact with the devil. How else can they explain away his viciously cruel behavior? Also, Bunwell repeatedly uses the love theme from Richard Wagner's epic opera Tristan and Isolde. That lets us know that we are dealing not with a love that conquers death, as Golden would have us believe, but a love that is obsessed with death, by which I mean necrophilia. Bunuel has Heathcliff, here renamed Alejandro, unearthing Catalina's grave and in a state of orgasmic reverie, is convinced he sees her alive. Which might not be in the novel, but by uniting the themes of sex and death, themes that were the beating heart of surrealism, Bunuel was also recognising the impulses that ran across the pages of Bronte's story. In other words, Bunuel was being radically faithful. In 2011, Andrea Arnold became the first woman to direct a feature film based on Bronte's novel. Is that important? I think so, because in case we need reminding, Bronte submitted her manuscript for publication under the name of Ellis Bell because she sensed that a female author would be rejected on the grounds of gender. Bronte's ruse worked and so does Arnold's radical interpretation. To start with, Arnold's film was the first to address the fact that Heathcliff was not white. When it was announced that black actors Solomon Glave and James Howson would respectively play the young and older Heathcliff, Arnold was accused of polluting Bronte's work with politically correct revisionism. But if those same zealous protectors of Bronte's book bothered to pay attention to her text, they would have noticed this passage from the very first chapter. Lockwood says of Heathcliff, He is a dark skinned gypsy in aspect. In chapter 6, Linton then refers to Heathcliff as a little Lasker. Now, I admit it had to be explained to me that a Lasker is a sailor from India. And then, to really make the point very clear, in chapter 7, Bronte has Ellen say to Heathcliff, A good heart will help you to a bonny face, my lad. If you are a regular black, and a bad one, you will turn the bonniest into something worse than ugly. But if that's all there was to Arnold's adaptation, it would be a stunt. Instead, she was alert to other neglected aspects of Bronte's story. Firstly, and obviously, there is the bigotry. Look at him, he's all dressed up like a little circus monkey. Then, religious zealotry. From all your filthiness, and from all your idols, well, i cleanse you. As well as sadism. Stop it! Kathy, go away! <coughs> what immediately strikes is that Arnold not only tackles these themes head-on, she does so in an appropriately coarse manner. We should hang you now, boy, before you get any older. Do the county a favour. Fuck you all, cunts. There is nothing quaintly rustic about these moors. Arnold and her cinematographer Robbie Ryan capture it as a remote and hostile place, where eking out a living is backbreaking. Forever cold, wet and windy, the elements bear down on the inhabitants until they resemble animals. There is precious little dialogue, and instead Arnold relies on nature to convey what the characters are feeling. The sensuality of the moors is heavily accented, and not in the way you might expect. Arnold reforms Bronte's story so the film is not necessarily something you hear or see, but rather experience. Nicholas Becker's sound design is so wild you can feel the gales blasting your cheeks. Never before has a Bronte adaptation so successfully conjured the wildness of the Moors. Rugged, rough and raw, you engage with it through the sense of touch. Less romantic, this film is haptic, and Arnold repeatedly shows us close-ups of hands as they roam over skin, slap, pull and punch, run through hair and tug at the scalp. The fingers then caress the scars, they pluck and feel the gorse and then plunge deep into the soft, moist sod. Arnold's treatment is more sensual than verbal, so much so that it is a substitute for the carnal. Recently, Emily Bronte's only novel was voted as the most romantic story ever written more adored than Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, Boris Pasternak's Doctor Zhivago, and Michael Ondaatje's The English Patient. Andrea Arnold's adaptation may not have been to the liking of all those who voted for Bronte's book, but it is much more respectful and radical than any other Bronte adaptation I know, and there I think is the line between interpretation and desecration.